Turn your Bibles to Psalm 131. Psalm 131, Song of Ascents. Let me read this. Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a short psalm. We, we see these few verses, and yet there's, there's much here in terms of the um, attitude and the expressions of David, and also things which we can learn in our own lives. So, Lord, Please teach us this evening. Help us to reflect upon these verses, the principles, the emotions, what we can learn, what we can apply to our lives. Please guide us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we've been going through the songs of ascent, and just by way of a reminder, these are those psalms um, which were not necessarily written for the, um, for the pilgrimage to the feast, but they were compiled together into one section in the Psalter. In this section, there's um, 15 of them that have been compiled for that pilgrimage, been given this, uh, this uh, superscription, a, a song of ascents. Um, and there's... There's a sense that, that some of them may have been written for that reason. We, we don't know exactly um, some of them as, you know, this, this psalm right here. Just to reflect upon a certain uh, time and um, a time in David's life, what he was going through. But nonetheless, they're, they're written, they're compiled, they're compiled um, for the, the, the Israelites to um, sing, to recite to one another as they travel up to Jerusalem to, to go um, to worship um, God. And, and we can see um, so many principles of um, perseverance um, through trials, of hope in God, of trusting God, of, of looking to God, of fearing God. Um, all throughout these Psalms, um, there's... Um, Principles and, and implications of salvation, of redemption throughout these psalms. And, and here in this psalm, we see, you know, it, clearly a psalm of David. And we see a, a humility here. A humility. And um, though this psalm is, is pretty short, it's just a few verses. Um, as many of the psalms of David, we... we can look back to parts of his life as we understand um, his story, the things that he went through from the time he was a, a shepherd boy to his call to be king and, and all the things that he went through with uh, Saul and Jonathan and then um, even his, his battles with the, with the Philistines, the uh, Amalekites, um, all the enemies of Israel and, and uh, uh, even uh, his... Um, feuding with uh, Absalom, or rather Absalom's uh, uh, subversion um, to him, his own son. We see the life of David, and, and I think it's, it's good to review some of these episodes because as we read this, this short psalm, I, I think it alludes, it points back to some of those episodes. We don't know for sure, um, but we could definitely see some of these episodes in, in uh, David's life. So turn with me. It just by way of reminder, um, there's a couple episodes that in, in David's life which I, I'd like to look back at. Um, the first one is 2 Samuel 1. In 2 Samuel 1, um, it accounts uh, the, the death of uh, Saul. 
And it's interesting because we, we see all the way back to the time when um, Jesse is sent to, or um, Samuel is sent to Jesse, uh, David's uh, father, to um, pick a, a king. And uh, David is, is the one out in the field. He, he's the one that was, wasn't even there to be chosen. And, and um, you know, the Lord tells Samuel, not, not these ones. And there's one more, and Samuel has to say, is there one more? And he comes out, and he, this is the one. And, and even then, um, you know, later on in, in, uh, with uh, Goliath, we remember that account. And then um, all his uh, instances with Saul, and Saul trying to kill him, or get him killed, and him running from Saul. And, and, and we remember that, that instance in, in the cave where... Uh, you know, all of David's men, they're, they're hiding in the back of this cave. And, and uh, Saul's men come up and, and Saul goes into the cave to relieve himself. Um, and uh, David, you know, all his men are like, here he is. Take, like, he's right there. You, and he says, no, no. But he cuts off that edge of his robe just to show him, hey, I did not, I could have killed you. But I did not. I did not spare you. And and uh, it's just interesting. Um, you know, we we get this this picture of of David's humility, of his trust in the Lord. And it's especially here um, when when Saul finally does die. And I want to read this. Second um, Samuel one says this after the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? He said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. And David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind me, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me. And yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm. And I have brought them here to my Lord. And get David's reaction here. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. So did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord, and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man, Who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner in Malachite. David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said to him, and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. It's an interesting turn of events that <clears throat> David even wept, fasted over the death of Saul. And Saul, all the evil that Saul had done to him, chasing him. David was on the run several times, uh, you know, Saul even trying to um, not only kill David himself, but get him killed. Some of the dangerous missions, some of the places he told him to go. Yet here, when Saul finally dies, David mourns and even kills the, the young man that killed him. It's, it's interesting, David just shows, you know, even though he knew, he knew that he would be king. He trusts in God. And so much so that he's, he's willing to wait. Willing to wait, willing to even uh, endure dangerous trials. 
And uh, we even see um, also the same sense of uh, waiting on the Lord, trusting in the Lord, trusting in God's providence in, in another account. And, uh, you know, his uh, Absalom and Absalom's revenge on um, his, his brother. Um, turn with me to 2 Samuel uh, 13. And uh, just by way of reminder, I, I wanted to point out these, these two events in David's life because it, it kind of um, illustrates uh, Psalm 131 a bit more. Understanding what David went through and uh, just his humility, his trust in God. And in uh, 2 Samuel 13, uh, verse 20, shows this. Uh, it reads a little bit about why Absalom did what he did. And it says, um, her brother Absalom said to her, this is um, after Amnon, his brother, has, um, in a sense, raped his sister. He says, has Abnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep sharers at Baal Hatzor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. He killed the king's sons. Not some of them fled. Um, but later on it would say that they would find out that Amnon alone is dead. But nonetheless, he tried to kill them all. And just... To think of his own son. Later on we, we see in, in 2 Samuel 15. In the beginning we see um, how Absalom in a sense uh, goes to the city gates. He uh, in a sense subverts the, the um, King David, his own father. Talking bad. Oh, if I were king, I would do this. If I were king, I would give... Um, this person justice. I would do justice. And he, he, he starts to plan this conspiracy which, which ends up in a coup. Ends up in a coup that, um, and, and David flees. And, and as, even as David's fleeing from Jerusalem, there's, there's, um, there's a, a man who is who's, um, uh, taunting him. And, uh, and uh, you know, taunting him, uh, just, you know, almost uh, um, screaming um, obscenities at him. David is, in a sense, humility, humiliated. And then later on, um, when Absalom is finally killed, this is probably, uh, I mean, probably the most heart-wrenching, um, one of the most heart-wrenching uh, Phrases or, or verses in the Bible or passages in the Bibles when, when um, David hears about the death of Absalom. Absalom, who had um, planned this conspiracy, this coup, um, who killed Amnon, who, who tried to kill the rest of David's sons. And in 2 Samuel um, 18, 31, towards the end of, of 2 Samuel 18, and even in the, the beginning of chapter 19, it, it says this. And it was Joab who, who killed Absalom as he got stuck in the trees and, and almost comical 
um, how the um, the uh, his 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 donkey uh, left him, and, and uh, he's stuck in the trees. And it says in in Second Samuel eighteen thirty one, and behold, the Cushite came. A Cushite came. And said, good news for my Lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my Lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. But I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Think how tore up his heart was. Just not, not just that, that Absalom had died, but certainly that in that moment he saw all his failures as a father. And his failures, even to... Um, to uh, protect Tamar from Amnon and to even discipline Amnon. That, you know, part of that was his own doing. But at the same time, we see his humility throughout both of those accounts, his, um, those times running from Saul and these times running from Absalom. And we can see where this this, this psalm um, kind of points to the heart of David. As he says, O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. There's this, this sense of, of contentment, of humility, of trust in God, of, of hope in Him, of, of resting in His providence and His sovereignty. One commentator writes this, he says, This psalm of confidence in the Lord models the ideal frame of soul before God. A calm and quieted soul, the opening section describes the humility that befits a faithful person. His heart is not lifted up and his eyes are not raised too high. Expressions for arrogance and pride. Nor does he occupy himself with things too great and too marvelous for him, with matters beyond human powers to comprehend. This person has calmed and quieted his soul like a weaned child with its mother, just as a weaned child is content simply having his mother's presence. So the faithful worshiper is content with God's presence, even when there are many things he would like God to explain, such as how one's own little story relates to the big story. This is certainly what I'm sure David was thinking in many of those moments as he was being chased down, hunted by Saul, as he was alone, um, those moments when he was, in a sense, uh, chased out of his own um, palace by his own son. Many moments in his life um, where, where he also knew for sure that he was anointed the king. He was chosen to be king of Israel. That God had his hand on him, and yet um, his circumstances did not line up with uh, what he thought God's plan was. And so he often had to calm and quiet his own soul. He had to find contentment in the fact that God is in control. Even though he doesn't understand his circumstances, God is in control. Charles Spurgeon says this, he says, um, concerning Psalm 131, he says, It is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. You can think about that in, in our own lives. I, I mean, the, the principles, um, the, the application is, is pretty clear. Not to lift our heart too high, not to raise our eyes too high, not to occupy ourselves with things that, which are too great for us, um, but to be content, to be calm, to be quiet, to hope in the Lord. And, uh, you know, this psalm is, is easily broken up three verses, and, and we can see um, there's really three sections of this psalm. Uh, and, and in this uh, psalm, there's these three sections uh, really point to three primary attitudes of true godliness. 
So we see three attitudes of true godliness expressed by the psalmist. First, we see um, a profession of humility. And we see, second, a confession of contentment. And then third, a call for hope. So first, a profession of humility in verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not lifted high. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. And here, notice how he, he professes his humility by saying what he is not. But more importantly, and, and, and for our own application, he expresses his humility by what he does, or more precisely, by what he does not do. In this first verse, we not only see David's profession of humility, but three ways in which he has cultivated humility. Humility. Three ways in which he has cultivated humility. First, by hindering a haughty heart. He has hindered a, heart, a haughty heart in, in verse 1. He says, my heart is not lifted up. It's not haughty. It's not raised up. And, and um, many times throughout the Old Testament and in, in the, the um, heart and minds, the, the, the thought of, of Israelites in, in, in the Hebrew language, the heart, is, um, is the center of the whole being. It's, it's, it, um, you know, we see in the Bible um, oftentimes these terms, heart, mind, soul. And uh, uh, to the Hebrew, the heart was kind of encompassed all those things. It was, it was, in a sense, the whole person. He's not lifted up. He's not high-minded. We see this in, um, you know, Psalm 18. Psalm 18 is, um, it's a confession. It's really David's confession of when uh, he was delivered, um, one of those accounts, he was delivered um, from Saul. And uh, David writes uh, Psalm 18. We also, you can see it in, um, in 1 Samuel. But Psalm 18 and, and verse 25, he he confesses this. He says, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. And it's interesting that, you know, the thing with humility is... Um, once you say you're humble or you confess, I'm a humble person, you're no longer humble. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it's just, and so David is almost, he's professing his humility by saying, by things, not saying I'm humble, but saying I do not do this. And even in Psalm 18, he says this in a sense, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. Almost in a, in a sense uh, saying, I, I am merciful, but without being prideful. <laughs> God has shown himself merciful to David. He's shown himself blameless. He's shown himself uh, pure to David. It's, it's interesting. and It's hard for us to um, confess or to profess humility. And if, it's even kind of hard to read this. But yet, this is scripture, and so it must be true. David is professing his own humility by saying, by saying he, he does not um, have a haughty heart. He professes his humility by um, saying he hinders a haughty heart. He does not let his heart um, lift up. You see this, um, this sense of haughtiness. We see it throughout the Proverbs. We see it throughout the Psalms. And we even see it in the New Testament. You know, this sense of being haughty. Um, it's, it's a word we don't typically use. We, we use the word prideful or arrogant. Um, but Paul writes this in Romans 12. As he, he's, he's teaching uh, uh, believers uh, in Rome how to live in light of the gospel. As he shifts... Um, in that letter into um, the application of, um, of the gospel. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 16, he says this. He says, live in harmony with one another. 
Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. It's a way in which Paul is, is telling them to be humble. To um, try to have harmony amongst each other. To associate with the lowly. It's also kind of, in a sense, um, uh, a lesson he tries to teach to Philippians where he says in, in uh, Philippians chapter 2 that to, to think of, of one another is more significant than yourselves. Associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own sight. He, he hinders a haughty heart by not allowing his heart to be lifted up, but also by trusting in God's providential plan for him. That he trusts that, that God has a plan. And that God will guide him, and God is, will not only guide him, but is um, working all things together for good, is, is guiding all the people around him, is, is working out all these um, details. Absalom with, with the Philistines, with the Amalekites, with all, all the details throughout his life. Proverbs 16, 18 says this, it says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. This is something which Solomon wrote, and and surely David follows. So David, um, he professes his humility, he cultivates a heart of humility by hindering a haughty heart. And second, David cultivates humility by limiting lofty eyes. By limiting lofty eyes. He does not raise his eyes. He does not look up. He does not, you know, um, uh, we, we have terms in our culture of, you know, buck up, chin up, you know, you know look up, you know, um, uh, hold your head high. Um, but the Bible says, um, you know, we, we, should, we should not lift our eyes too high. We should not have lofty eyes doesn't mean that we should, you know, mope around and, and, and look at our, our, our shoes all the time and, and be depressed and down and be afraid to raise our eyes, but we should not um, have a proud demeanor. Proverbs 6 says this, uh, you know, if you ever wonder what God does not like or what he hates, you know, look at Proverbs 6 and verse 16, and it says right here, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. But yet he, you know, Solomon writes that list and he starts the list with haughty eyes. Haughty eyes, pride. Pride is probably the first sin. Pride in the... In, in the devil. So, David cultivates humility by hindering a haughty heart, by limiting lofty eyes, and third, by prohibiting a preoccupation with greatness. By prohibiting a preoccupation with greatness. He says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. We, we probably think of this in, in, in our own lives and... Um, we think of the term uh, delusions of grandeur. <laughs> and sometimes that, that's been written on uh, uh, psychiatric evaluations, <laughs> delusions of grandeur. But uh, we can think back in our own lives, and, and there's been those times um, where we've probably had delusions of grandeur. It may not have been a you know, president or you know, a, a famous athlete or celebrity, but it may have just been, uh, you know, that everybody around us likes us and we have everything that we want. This is a, a preoccupation with positions, with wealth, with power or fame. Um, and, and a preoccupation in a sense that, that is beyond our abilities, beyond our skill, beyond um, our wisdom, our intellect. Once again, Proverbs, um, Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes 
before honor. We, um, you know, even if we're able to um, attain great wealth or great position or um, uh, status, um, we should not look to that. We should not preoccupy ourselves with, um, with greatness, with things too great or too marvelous for us. And, and, and certainly we, we can see that in, in a natural, physical sense of the delusions of grandeur, of, of being somebody great. But there's also a sense that, that we can do that in a spiritual um, realm. A preoccupation with spiritual matters which are too marvelous for us. Um, you know, dwelling on uh, fulfillment of prophecy or, or um, what heaven is like. Um, what, um, you know, characteristics of angels which the, the Bible does not speak to. And, and demons in hell and um, the advancement of, of the kingdom around the world. And things which... You know, we, we don't really know. We don't have the answer to. There's, there's many things in the Bible that, that um, we're, we're left in mystery. We don't have all the answers. We, we don't know exactly when pro- prophecy will be fulfilled. We, we understand prophecy after it happens, really. Uh, I mean, there's some prophecies that, that are very clear. We, we see that, you know, we have the, the benefit of living you know, in the church age. And looking back at Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled that we can see are crystal clear. Um, but even in, in the time of Jesus, many of his own disciples, they, there's things that they, they were unclear about. And part of that is because they, they did not have the spirit. But there's also things that they just weren't too clear about. There's things they should have known when it happened, when it was unfolding before their eyes, they should have known. But as, as we think of, you know, there's, there's people that set dates and, and uh, when, when is the Lord going to return? When, you know, we're moving towards a one world government and, and certainly we can see things getting worse, but, but we don't really know. Especially when it comes to things like heaven. What is heaven like? Or what are angels like? There's, there's only a handful of passages throughout the Bible that tell us, give us that information. And we need to stick to those passages. To, to go beyond that, to speculate, we're in a sense um, occupying ourselves with things too marvelous for us. And as even Paul said when he was caught up to the third heaven, he says, you know, I saw, saw things which are, are, are too wonderful to speak of. And, and probably he says that because he couldn't explain it. He couldn't put words to it. But there's a sense that we shouldn't preoccupy ourselves with those things. Deuteronomy 29, 29, which is a verse that all of us should memorize. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. We need to stick to Scripture. And this is part of being humble. We don't occupy ourselves with things too great for us, things too marvelous for us. We, do, we don't raise our eyes too high or lift our heart too high. Old Testament scholar Willem van Gemeren, he writes this in his commentary. He says, the proud person looks, compares, competes, and is never content. He plans and schemes in his heart as to how he can outdo and outperform. The godly knows that true godliness begins in the heart that is not proud, with eyes that do not envy, and with a walk of life that is not preoccupied with greatness and with accomplishments. And that's really the the heart of this psalm is is contentment. Humility and contentment. So David begins with a profession of humility, and then second, a confession of contentment. Verse 2, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother like a weaned child is my soul within me he confesses his contentment and his contentment is really um, confessed in two ways of of exercising contentment that he has he has calmed and quieted his soul he's he's exercised contentment he's practiced contentment 
He's made his heart content, his soul content. And certainly as we look back to those um, instances in his life with Saul, with Absalom, and, and there's many others in, in, the, in the life of David, he had, he had several instances, several circumstances by which he could easily become anxious, fearful, worried. Some of his psalms allude to that. Psalm 62, um, you know, many times in David's psalms, we, we see... Um, it's, it's not, it's not if it, as if David is saying something new, um, but it's almost as if David is reassuring his own soul, his own heart in many of his psalms. And in Psalm 62, he says this, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. That's one of the ways in which David had exercised contentment. One of the ways in which he had calmed and quieted his own soul. And there's, there's a sense that, that um, contentment has to be practiced. It has to be learned. Just, just like um, Paul says in the New Testament, in Philippians chapter 4, he says he has learned contentment. He has, he has learned to be content. We see this in, in Philippians chapter 4, and, and um, you can turn there. Um, you know, this great passage of, you know, uh, Paul says, uh, uh, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. It is a key passage in Philippians chapter 4 in which we. we um, can go to when we're anxious, when we're worried, when we're fearful. It's a passage um, I had memorized at one time, a passage I try to meditate on often, a passage I have shared with others, counseled with others about. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. There's a sense this is how Paul learned contentment because he goes on and he, he talks about that gift, the, the, the gift um, which uh, the Philippians um, sent to him, talking uh, their support for him. And that's why he writes this letter as a thank you letter. And he goes on in verse 11 of chapter 4, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And he goes on, he says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And when he says in, in you know, uh, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, that's, that's, he's not talking about winning football games or you know, all the many things that, that we hear that verse quoted for. He's talking about living the Christian life, of being faithful, of being a faithful minister, that he can be content whether he is um, being beaten or imprisoned or, or, or whether um, people are getting saved and, or whether um, you know, other believers are blessing him with food, shelter, and clothing, whether he is... Um, Said he's facing plenty or hunger. And, and in Paul's life, those things could change day by day. And so he had to learn contentment. It's easy for us to be content when things are going well. And, and sometimes it's even, even um, somewhat easy to, to be in a, a horrible situation long term. And over time, you just become content with it. But when things change so quickly, from good to bad... It can be hard to be content. But we need to learn contentment. We need to practice contentment. Uh, David Paulson, who is, um, he recently died a couple years ago. Uh, he was really big in the counseling, the biblical counseling world. And he wrote many articles and books. And in his book, Seeing with New Eyes, he writes this. He says, this composure is learned and it is learned in relationship. 
Such purposeful quiet is achieved, not spontaneous, it is conscience, alert and chosen. It is a form of self-mastery by the grace of God. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. And it happens in living relationship with someone else. That's what he's talking about, living with God, understanding God, uh, trusting in God. And this is why um, uh, David uses this this illustration of like a weaned child with its mother, this intimate relationship between a a young child and its mother, an infant who has just recently been weaned. And it's kind of hard, maybe hard for some of us to to say, you know, to understand why a weaned child? You can think a a child that's not weaned from its mother's milk, it can can be fussy, can be, um, can always want, something, um, you know, um, demanding. But when the weaning process is done, it, it, it's, it's contented. Not completely, because, you know, we, we know toddlers and young children that they're not completely content, but there, there's a sense that this picture of the, the child resting um, on his mother. David Paulson, once again, he, he says this, um, about this psalm and, and this picture. He says this, he says, um, he suggests that we each think deeply about this matter by considering the opposite of Psalm 131, the so-called anti-psalm. So he, he takes this psalm and he flips it around so that we can, we can think of it in a better way. So he writes this anti-psalm, the exact opposite. And he writes this psalm, he rewrites it in the opposite this way. He says this, Self, my heart is proud. I'm absorbed in myself. And my eyes are haughty. I look down on other people. And I chase after things too great and too difficult for me. So of course I'm noisy and restless inside. It comes naturally. Like a hungry infant fussing on his mother's lap. Like a hungry infant, I'm restless with my demands and worries. I scatter my hopes onto anything and everybody all the time. It's the, the anti-psalm. And, and sometimes, we, you know, that helps. Um, there, there is an, a, a, a concept um, called negative theology where we can better understand um, God and who he is by flipping things around and looking at the, ex- the exact opposite. That's what David Paulson does here. He flips this psalm around um, to teach us. And then he goes on and he says, Even if you say I don't have issues with pride, my problem is a lack of self-esteem and self-confidence, you really have a problem with pride. Fear of failure and rejection, self-pity, and an unhealthily low opinion of oneself express pride failing, pride intimidated, and pride despairing. And that's really, you know, all of these, these, these three attitudes, humility, contentment, hope, they're, they're all overlapping, interconnecting. One feeds into the other. A proud heart cannot be content. It's discontent, always wants more. Because a proud heart thinks it deserves more. But a humble heart can be content. And contentment flows naturally through a humble heart. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, he says, um, talking about um, godliness. Some think godliness is a means of gain. He's talking, in a sense, about uh, relig- religious false teachers or, or um, the, you know, maybe even true believers who are prideful and, uh, and um, uh, trying to be uh, the spiritual elite. And he goes on in 1 Timothy 6, 6, he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Just the, 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 the basic needs of this life that God has promised to give to us. If we have those things, we will be content. He goes on further in that chapter, 1 Timothy 6, 17. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. 
provides us with everything to enjoy. There, there's no reason to be haughty, to be proud, to be worried, to be anxious, to be fearful. We can be content if we trust in God, if we hope in Him. Hebrews chapter 13, the, the writer to the Hebrews, he says this, Hebrews 13 verse 5, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is a, a secret of contentment is trusting in God, hoping in God, not being proud, not, not trusting in yourself or your circumstances, but hoping in God. And, and that's a, the, the third point of this psalm. The third attitude is a call for hope. A call for hope. And he, he, this is call to hope is, is to the, the, the object of true hope. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And, and there's this thing about hope. Hope is, in a sense, a, a, a form of faith. Um, but we, we don't, there's no such thing as a blind hope. We hope in something. There is an object of our hope. And as many have said, there, we can't, go throughout life without hope. You know, there's that quaint saying, you know, you can live, you know, uh, what, like 40 days without food, three days without water, but you can't live more than, you know, 30 seconds without hope. And really, no one knows that, but it, it does, there is a sense where there's some truth to that. That we hope in things, we, you know, even as, you know, for, for those of you who work um, a, a normal job, you have the weekends off, there's oftentimes, I'm sure, you, you hope in the weekend. <laughs> you hope for that day off. You hope for that rest. You hope for that vacation. You hope for the things that you will do, the time off that you will have. Even if it's an evening, you place your hope in that. There, there's a little bit of hope in that. Um, sometimes we hope for a good meal, going out to a restaurant, and it, this is going to be great. And, and there's true hope in that, especially if it's a really good restaurant. You, you expect to have some really good food. There's a sense of hope, but it's momentary hope. It's temporal hope. It, it's it's uh, uh, earthly hope. We're called to a greater hope, a hope in the Lord. We're, that, that's where our full hope is, our, our true hope. And so that's what David calls it. The, the, the people to do, o, o Israel, hope in the Lord. And, and your hope is only as good as the object of your hope. And so as we you know, have these earthly hopes, whether it be a time off, a vacation, a house, a new job, or whatever it is, which are real hopes, but they're temporary. And, and they can fail us. But true hope can only be found in the Lord. It's, it's, it's everlasting hope. And so there's this call for hope to the object of true hope and then for the duration of true hope. From this time forth and forevermore, the duration of your hope will last as long as the object of your hope. So if you hope in the Lord, that's, that's eternal hope. That's everlasting hope because the Lord is eternal. So our hope in the Lord is eternal hope. It's everlasting life. It, it, it doesn't fade away. It doesn't go away. We'll be with him forever. And so that is a sure, true hope. That's how David ends this psalm. Alan Ross, in his commentary on the Psalms, he writes this. This word hope is the same word used in the exhortation in Psalm 130. There, the people were encouraged to hope for full forgiveness of sin. Here, it is more general, encouraging people to put their full trust in the Lord rather than delude themselves into thinking they have the abilities to solve all the problems of life. A call to trust is therefore a call to humility. A refusal to trust is pride. And this is where David starts with this psalm with humility and then contentment, and then hope. They're all, all interconnected. And we're, we're not to be proud. We're not to be discontent. We're not to be worried. We're not to be anxious. And why? Because we have an everlasting hope.
We have a true hope. We have an eternal hope. And, and that it, hope is in the Lord. Our hope is in the Lord. You know, as may, many of our songs say, many of the scriptures say, and work to live a life of hope, of true hope. Not like um, the unbelievers, not like those who don't know the Lord, those who hope in all the temporary hopes of this world. And, and that's the extent of their hope. We can hope in, in a time off, in, in a vacation, in a good meal, and, but that's just temporary. Our, our, our true and lasting hope, our, the source of all hope, is God in our salvation that He has bought for us. He has paid for us through the blood of His Son. And that's where we find contentment. That's where we can rest. That's where... Um, there's no pride because there's nothing that we have done to secure that hope. But it is everlasting hope. It is a true hope. And we live in light of that hope. Heavenly Father, we read this psalm and it can be very convicting. Very hard to us. Very confronting. Because if we're honest with ourselves, oftentimes our heart is lifted up. Sometimes our eyes are raised too high. Sometimes we dream and fantasize and occupy ourselves with things that are too great for us. So oftentimes we go through life anxious, worried, fearful, discontent. And you call us to contentment. You call us to hope in you. And if we truly hope in you, we will be content. We will rest in you. So Lord... Help us to live like this. Help us to follow this example of David. To quiet and calm our own souls. Because our souls are, have, have been bought by you. And belong to you if we are in Christ. So help us to live in light of salvation. And for those of us here who don't know the Lord. Lord I pray that you would um, call them to your side that you would do a work in their heart and mind, that they may know this true and everlasting hope. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.